It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, g'day and welcome, listeners, to The Two Jacks. We're in episode 15, where we've combined all Australian domestic and uh, political and media news uh, with our world coverage. And uh, it's world coverage because joining me, as usual, is Hong Kong Jack all the way in Hong Kong, of course. How are you today, mate? I'm excellent, mate. And the big news out of Hong Kong and China this week really is Australian news. There are are currently 50,000 Chinese citizens who are enrolled in uh, Australian universities who were expecting to spend this year um, uh, studying from China. And the Chinese Ministry of Education has decided, no, you can't do that. So all 50,000 of them are scrambling around trying to get visas and trying to get Air tickets, that's the big problem. Ooh, uh, not enough expensive. planes just yet. Um, and then find accommodation in Australia. Um, the, the immigration department's doing their bit. It's about 13 days now to get a student visa, which is pretty good. That's not um, bad. Uh, but um, uh, yeah. the real problem is the planes and the accommodation. But uh, some economics boffin told me this morning that it's $5 billion to the Australian economy to have all these people back in the country. Good news for the Australian economy, most certainly. And that is because ch- the Chinese academic world is not accepting remote learning. Is that it? Oh, it's a little bit hard to say why they're doing this, as always. That There's real, no real explanation, but it's good news for the big Australian universities and it's good news for the economy. I'm sure they'll be very pleased because they've had a rather tough time of it. So we're going to see potentially as many as 50,000 Chinese students arrive in Australia where they will learn remotely, Jack. Yeah, they'll they'll learn from the flat down the road. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent news. Excellent news, of course. And we do want to kick on uh, with Australian news uh, because uh, there has been an absolute shambles exposed in what's known as the robo-debt ROCO the Robo-Debt Royal Commission, and I just wanted to uh, pass on my thanks. I've watched as much of it as I could live, but uh, for for anyone missing out, uh, uh, it was well worth following Rick Morton on Twitter, who was giving a, a thorough account of the testimony provided by uh, Ministers Tudge and uh, Christian good, Porter. Good old-fashioned good old fashioned court reporting. I saw a bit of it myself. Yeah, no, it was excellent stuff. Uh, Rick's, a, Rick's a, an old colleague of mine at The Australian now with the Saturday paper and uh, has written some excellent stuff on this going back a number of years. Um, Jack, what occurs to me about this uh, schmozzle, and it's worse than a schmozzle, really, that... That's uh, that's just that's just your your, your run of the day snafu. But uh, this uh, has cost the Australian taxpayer billions um, <coughs> uh, in reparations, uh, and clearly revealed an illegal program, uh, an illegal policy being implemented by the bureaucracy, uh, and in their full knowledge for about two years, and no one having the uh, cojones to go and tell the boss. That's what it looks like. And at the same time, the bosses, well, at least their political masters, didn't seem to be very curious about it, Jack. No, no, no. Um, uh, Laura Tingle, in her excellent piece, um, uh, 
uh, ABC, yeah, ABC. I, I, on, on the ABC website, um, mm. it was all over this. I thought her piece was, you know, really, really good. Um, Minister Tudge went very badly. I've got to say, um, uh, Porter, the former Attorney General and briefly the Minister in charge of this department, he did okay because he was quite frank and said, look, there were things that I, if I had my time over again, I would do better and do differently. <clears throat> and there were things that I regret not, regret not having done. Um, which I think is the proper approach for a minister in these circumstances. Um, Alan Tudge was having none of that. None of that. Can I just uh, run you through an exchange between uh, counsel assisting Justin Gregory KC and uh, Minister Tudge, former Minister Tudge? Uh, Gregory asked him, do you understand the concept of ministerial responsibility? And Tudge said, I accept and understand deeply the Westminster concept of ministerial responsibility. But he said he did not accept responsibility for the choices of individuals in his department to not raise a matter. I was responsible for the implementation of the scheme, he added. Surely, Gregory replied, that means the lawful implementation of the scheme. It's the <coughs> the Westminster concept of ministerial responsibility dot 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 with a but with a very large but very large this but. is this is sort of new although it's been <clears throat> it's been prevalent for um, uh, quite a few governments now that you're kind of responsible but you're kind of not mm. and and the fault at the first point lies with the bureaucracy receiving independent legal advice and then subsequently advice from the Solicitor General that the robo-debt, this business of accessing ATO data to uh, 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 try and work out a sort of a, a figure of a weekly salary based on annualised data, uh, <clears throat> receiving that advice, receiving this very solid advice, uh, both from the public sector and the private one, and then uh, everyone sort of sat on it, uh, a bit worried that, uh, that they didn't want to let their, their boss uh, at the time, Catherine Campbell, uh, they didn't want to upset her day. Yeah, Laura Tingle <coughs> uh, quotes some people from the department. Um, after Catherine Campbell came to the department, there came to be a culture even at the higher levels of reticence or fear to raise issues. Colloquially, there was a commentary no one wanted to give her bad news. And so they didn't. And it ran for two years, mm. uh, led to a great amount of, um, of anxiety and fear within the community, people receiving these notices, uh, people... Uh, People on the, the old rock and roll, not just them, pensioners, old age pensioners, uh, receiving these terrible notices. It came to a head over the the, uh, the summer of 2016, 2017, where people were sent Christmas cards from the, uh, the DSS and the DHS from Centrelink uh, saying, you owe us a great deal of money, and those people had to deal with the anxiety of all of that over the Christmas period, and that's when... Um, a number of stories started appearing in media saying how uh, basically identifying a number of people. In fact, I think there was an op-ed written by a recipient of a robo-debt letter of demand. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, then Minister Tudge was called back to service. I think he was overseas in Europe, in, in England at the time, called back by Malcolm Turnbull as the Prime Minister of the day and told to get back and better sort this out. And all he seemed to sort out was 
to run news stories that would uh, undermine these people. Yeah, all he dealt with, with, with this was the politics of the thing, not about the um, uh, the merits of the of the decision to do the robo debt and and or and or its legality. Yes, indeed, and um, and this was known by the public service, but they didn't do it, Jack. It's, it, it's actually their job to give people bad news, and when you're talking mm. to the head of your department, if you've got bad news, it's your job to tell her. What lies in the future for someone like Catherine Campbell? Now, she was <laughs> she actually got promoted after robo-debt jack by the previous government, and now she's been appointed in a roving role to AUKUS by the Albanese government on 900 large a year. Nice money if you can get it. Nice work if you can get it. Um, surely this is career-ending for her. You would think so, wouldn't you? And where, what of Alan Tudge? I mean, I, I fully accept what you're saying, and, and this is uh, about Christian Porter, and, and, and that was supported by uh, Laura Tingle's article, that at least he put his hand up and said, I'll accept some responsibility for not asking the right questions. And then when I did ask the, the right questions, I wasn't, and I wasn't satisfied with the answers I should have pushed on. Yeah, um, he, he, he accepted that he was being fobbed off to some extent and he didn't push hard enough. And, yeah, and he, that's, that's and, essentially and, the, the blame. And, and, and he, he accepted the judgment that, that was incorrect. You know? um, what happens with Alan Tudge, Jack? He's still on the front bench of uh, the front uh, front bench with the opposition. What happens with him? Uh, not much in the immediate term. Um, uh, the next election might be interesting. Yes, I think that's what we're left with, Jack. I mean, in the good old days, and we're both old blokes, mate, in the good old days, if an adverse finding was made against you in the Royal Commission, that was generally uh, time to uh, pack your things in a little box and go wandering off. Uh, yeah, spend to, more time to with your family. Yes, indeed. Yeah, a bit of gardening. Um, but uh, but not so much these days. No. No, so, no, it doesn't, it, so it's it, left to the people, isn't it? So it we, is. we saw Alan Tudge had a, had a rather substantial swing against him uh, uh, at the most recent election, but retained his seat. Um, and, of course, uh, one of uh, the people giving uh, uh, testimony last week was um, uh, Rochelle Miller, who's a former media advisor who, um, uh, who uh, laid out uh, uh, Alan Tudge's media strategy on how to deal with this rather than actually inquiring as to whether the scheme was legal or not. Um, and she, of course, received a $630,000 payment for uh, a settlement, shall we say. Jack, I'm not quite sure whether whether we call it bullying or sexual harassment. I, I, certainly the... the the uh, relationship was consensual, although there were claims and counterclaims about uh, rather poor behaviour from former Minister Tudge, uh, <coughs> including one of uh, a physical abuse that was uh, sent off for inquiry and found not to have any substance or not found to be proven one way or another. Uh, <coughs> but uh, it, it just seems that uh, people will just roll on. And, and, and the big problem with this, Jack, is, is that we start losing faith in our institutions, don't we? And 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 one of those institutions that's kind of kind of always been highly regarded by the by, by the by the Australian public is our, is our bureaucracy. Mm. Yeah, our public service has a deservedly pretty good reputation. Well, perhaps not so much now, Jack. And and maybe the answer is to just load up the consultants, Jack. Uh, um, ignore the bureaucracy altogether or have them there in a sort of uh, walk-on role 
um, but leave it to companies like KPMG and uh, um, Price Waterhouse Coopers and McKinsey to uh, to do the to do the heavy lifting. Uh, this has become an increasingly common phenomena in the public service. Is that is the use of outside consultants? That's correct. Yeah, look, it came to a head last week. It's been a problem going forth for decades, really, but, but governments have relied on consultancies in a whole raft of areas that seem wildly inappropriate. In some, in some cases, it's, it, you can understand it, but literally billions of dollars is, is passing hands from government to, uh, to some of these consultants companies. It, it came to a head last week uh, when... Uh, uh, the the federal treasurer promised to throw the book at people responsible for what he labelled a shocking breach of trust, an appalling breach of trust. He went on to say, Treasurer Chalmers had discovered, uh, and this came up in the uh, Fin Review, and this was reported in the Guardian, that um, the former head of international tax for Price Waterhouse Coopers, uh, Peter John Collins, had been deregistered by the Tax Practitioners Board for failing to act with integrity and for sharing confidential government briefings. He might be having a bit of gardening. He might be doing a bit of gardening right now, Jack. Oh, he's going to have a terrific garden before he gets back to it. <laughs> the board confirmed. I mean, it's not really funny, but basically he, was, he had taken confidential information from the Australian Taxation Office and elsewhere in the Department of Finance and Treasury and had gone on to basically make Unauthorized disclosures to partners and staff at Price Waterhouse Coopers, um, and particularly in regard to uh, uh, new rules to stop multinationals avoiding tax by shifting profits from Australia to tax and secrecy havens. If there were loopholes there, he he was uh, passing them on, Jack. This is not a, a systemic problem. This is a, a personal problem. I mean, the reason he was there is he, we wouldn't expect Jim Chalmers or necessarily the bureaucrats to be, to have chapter on verse on what multinational corporations were doing. So he's there to advise the, the Treasury on how this goes about. The problem was that he took the information he got, which was this is what we think we'll do, he took that back to his own firm and shared that information with um, uh, his partners and staffers. And that's an appalling, uh, the, the Treasurer is right, that's an appalling breach of trust. We are we all expect that when you're talking to your lawyer or an advisor in this, in this, this situation that the confidence of that conversation will be respected, and it just wasn't. Well, it just seems to me more and more that, uh, that the government is relying on consultants to tell them, you know, what's the weather like outside? You know, um, uh, <laughs> and if it's sunny... Should should I wear a short sleeve shirt? I mean, it's yeah, just. Well, it's, I think there's a there's a great great comment on this. The a consultant is just someone who takes the watch off your wrist and tells you the time. Yeah, an expensive watch too. Mm. Um, yes, uh, uh, part of this, and it gets back to what we we're talking about about, about Robotech, is this, is this kind of continued deflection of responsibility um, that uh, that that this sort of. Uh, Heavy emphasis on consultancy is creating um, is creating further a get-outs for ministers who, under the Westminster system, are responsible responsible for what goes on on their ballywick with a butt and an even bigger butt is that oh a consultancy told me to do this. Yeah, yeah. Now over to the voice, Jack. <clears throat> 
And uh, we left it out of last week's program, but we're going to continue to report on The Voice and where it's going to. Um, now, Chris Mitchell, in a piece that he wrote, I believe, last week um, uh, in The Australian, uh, he pointed to um, uh, certain polarisation. We shouldn't be using that word, by the way, Jack. We said we wouldn't, um, but he has pointed to a division, shall we say, um, uh, appearing between uh, Indigenous uh, Australians uh, in the big in the big smoke, uh, as opposed to those in rural and remote Australia, uh, and that they had different ambitions, different am- objectives, and that this was a problem for the Voice. Yeah, I think he might be on might be onto something there. Well. In that piece, and we're going to pop it up on uh, the uh, Conditional Release Program Facebook page and we'll direct you to it. It it contains um, uh, a a report from the First Nations Voice Empowered Productivity and Closing the Gap Committee, and it is probably the clearest thing you will read on The Voice and why it should be implemented. It's this, a 40 this is the, page Cape document. York, the, the Cape York group document. This is from uh, Cape York and, and obviously uh, Noel Pearson, one of the authors there, um, uh, but it's a 40-page document. It's, it's in clear English, and this is, I think, I would go on to argue where the voice is starting to starting to fall off. I mean, there's some problems with communications there, um, but this is all in clear English as to why it's important. And just a quote from that, just a quote from that report. Uh, it says the most powerful argument for the voice is the context of intractable disadvantage. Successive top-down attempts by government to address causes and symptoms have been ineffective or caused further pain. The process that led to the Uluru statement from the heart, uh, <coughs> a sort of voice from the grassroots to government, a grassroots megaphone. Uh, as Conservative scholar Damien Freeman and Australian Catholic University Vice-Chancellor Greg Craven describe it, which would allow Indigenous communities to become the authors of their own fate rather than the perpetual victims of paternalistic policy. Uh, And I'll just read on. This is important for two reasons. First, because people who live in a community will usually have a better idea of what their community needs than ideological governments. Can't argue with that. Second, because even when they get it wrong, as they sometimes will, they will have ownership of the mistake and the responsibility for correcting it. Accountability is a precondition of empowerment. Uh, All very clear. Jack, isn't it? Uh, yes, this is so much better than, than the wooliness of the Langton Karma report um, and the government needs to do more work with this sort of approach um, and make a better case than they're currently doing at the moment. I think, I mean, I, I, I honestly think that, um, that the media and uh, potentially the no voice are sort of getting a, a bit ahead of themselves um, and they're trying desperately to, uh, uh, well, they're appealing for more information. Well, there's plenty of information there, but in terms of something digestible for the Australian public, there's really nothing there. The government needs to get on with its political communications um, and those responsible for uh, promoting the voice need to get on with their communications and uh, and, 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 and start and, and start explaining to the Australian people 
in simple terms, and I'm not trying to be patronising, but in simple terms, why this is necessary. And and just those two or three paragraphs are fantastic, aren't they? I mean, they, they really just yeah. do explain it. Um, uh, I think there are some flaws in that argument, but at least it's clear and it's persuasive. Look, my personal view is that we're probably, you know, that the, the, the no side is trying to basically walk uh, the yes side into making the mistake of um, um, going off prematurely, and and I think that there will be a time for this, that for that very clear discussion to take place. I don't think February of this year is that time, to be honest. Um, if we are, as suggested, going to have a referendum in October, it may not be, maybe maybe sometime next year. But I think the time for the nation to have a conversation. and a robust and and comprehensive conversation across the nation is not, we're not quite there yet. The media wants to have it. The no side wants to have it. um, And and the yes side really, I think, needs to be very careful about how it communicates itself in the next few months before really getting into hammering hammering on the, 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 the sorts of messages that we see there from the Cape York uh, mob. If you asked uh, the Australians today whether they um, would agree that we should have some constitutional recognition of First Nations people, they would pretty overwhelmingly say yes, I expect. <clears throat> but that can never be the question that's put. The question has to explain how that is going to change the constitution. So the question well, might be very long, but it's got to be clear. And that's a much harder thing to draft. Um, so that's where they ought to be concentrating their efforts now. Um, uh, I don't think there's any point in um, in the yes case coming out and uh, belting the no case around the ears for whatever perceived failings they're no. making, no, because that's, that's just going to drive people into the no camp. Um, 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 so that's exactly the wrong approach. Yes, uh, and, and just compounding this, George Megalogenis, one of uh, one of the nation's uh, better commentators, um, um, uh, very intelligent fellow, uh, Mega, um, former colleague of mine, good fellow, even though he's a Richmond barrager, um, he has sort of gone through some. Um, Gone through some data with the ABS and identified a few things that are that are of interest to the voice, and I think um, certainly of interest to our politics uh, more generally. He identified three groups in Australia: what he calls old Australia, uh, and that is uh, a white Australia uh, who have been uh, living in Australia as as citizens for three generations or more, and that includes old old fellows like you and me, Jack. Um, well, I don't think you, you're not quite three gens. Um, I don't think. Oh, well, I've got a bit of news. I'm tainted. Um, I'm tainted, tainted with Kiwi, the irremovable uh, uh, stain uh, of New Zealand citizenship, Jack. Yeah, yeah, but I'm I'm definitely in the old Australia camp. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but I think we sort of broadly fit into that crowd. Uh, yeah. And and then there's uh, the Indigenous or First Australian uh, group, and then there's New Australians, and that's defined by those Australians who have. Um, uh, who have either uh, recently arrived in the country or uh, first-generation Australians. And um, when he uh, looks at that, he, he looks at uh, uh, old Australia, 
taking up the majority in Queensland, 53%, Tasmania, 65%, and South Australia, 52%. The new Australian majorities are 53% in New South Wales, 55 in Victoria, and 59% in Western Australia. Um, on those figures, um, it would seem the voice would not get up if we presume that old Australia will not support the voice as perhaps new Australians uh, might, and of course Indigenous Australians will. Well, that, that seemed to be George's argument, but I, I, I actually don't think that um, it's quite that cut and dried as that, that old Australians are necessarily conservative on this sort of issues and new Australians are necessarily liberal on I just don't think that's quite right. But No, I don't um, either, by the way. I, I think it's a very important sort of piece of demographic analysis for yeah, politics is. generally. I was a bit surprised by the 59% in WA, but then they, they have had a high immigration there for quite a oh, while. Oh, very high. So, yeah. yeah. With yeah. all the mining jobs. Literally falling over South Africans in Perth and, yeah. um, well, and, and when the, quite a lot when of the, our English friends are there too. Yeah. When Kiwis. The, when the Springboks play in Perth, it's a home game, isn't it? You know? <laughs> anyway, we might put that to one side, but I think George's stuff is actually going to be really important yeah. to look at when we, when, when we started a broader analysis of Australian politics. Peter Brent also wrote a good piece. Another colleague of mine, ex-colleague of mine, um, used to blog at The Australian and uh, is now uh, returned to academia and, uh, and wrote for the Inside Story. It's a good piece um, where he sort of talked about uh, uh, the history of referenda in this country, Jack, and uh, with Labor in government, uh, the facts are one up for 25 down. Um, yes, um, uh, some people we know were partially uh, um, uh, looking after the four referendums during the Hawke uh, Hawk government years, and it was uh, zero and four, I'm afraid. Zero and four there, and I think Mick Young got a bit of an ass-kicking from uh, Bob Hawke there, a bit of yelling at it because they didn't explain it well. That's uh, And perhaps that's a lesson for The Voice. They just didn't explain what was going on. Yeah, but it is fair to say Peter Brent does identify that Labor has not a good track record on getting referenda up. Not a good track record. But it does bring into discussion whether we believe, and it seems to be this kind of political truism that I don't know stands true, that if you don't, that without bipartisan support, referenda have no chance of success in this country. I'm not sure that that's the case these days, Jack. Oh, I don't think that's ever been the case. I don't think it's been. I don't think it's really been about bipartisanship. <clears throat> what it's really been about is having a decent idea and then communicating it to the broad range of people. People don't. I don't think vote on party lines much in those things. Now, Jack, um, uh, we've. Uh just recently been uh, alerted to the fact that there is, uh, I believe, an action in the Fair Work Commission may well be headed to the federal court if it's not already, and that is uh, the case of a staffer, in fact, the Chief of Staff, um, Sally Rugg, Chief of Staff, that is, to Monique Ryan, the member for Kuyong, the Teal member for Kuyong, and Sally Rugg took on the job as Chief of Staff with great fan fanfare and a couple of lovely tweets that show she was a lovely, having a lovely time of it in the first couple of weeks when they were still popping champagne corks. And, uh, but now it's turned into a bit of a nightmare, as she claims, with having to work 60 to 70 hours per week. I don't want to talk too much about that case because that's before uh, judicial authorities to determine uh, whether what she does is fair and reasonable. But um, it does bring to mind the question that political staffers work absolutely hideous hours. 
They do. Sean Kelly's got a terrific piece in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald um, uh, this morning about his life as I think he was uh, an advisor um, when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister. Yes, uh, that's and right. He and he, and he talks about um, getting up <coughs> at very, very early hours of the morning so he'd be ready for the 6.15am joint call um, and not finishing until well after the 6.30pm uh, joint call to end the day. Well, if you're a person not as not as highly credentialed and as, as experienced as Carney, you might have to get up at three thirty in the morning and go and pick up the papers as they came off the presses, or if they came came into the uh, came came through the airport at uh, at Canberra. Um, it's a job. I mean, look, and let's let's also remember, and we and with their heads bowed in sorrow, some of the uh, some of the uh, advisors to Kevin Rudd. I mean, they were lucky to get any sleep for three years. Yeah, well, Kevin used to have a bad habit, I'm told, of, of ordering someone to stay up all night producing a report, and then the report would hit his desk next morning and he wouldn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he'd painstakingly go through the wording on those reports, Jack, uh, and, and, and so there'd be this sort of to and fro and email exchanges and what have you, and then the work was just lost. It's just never, yeah. didn't, nothing ever happened about. Yeah, great uh, but, for morale. But then, across across both sorts of politics, this is this is really if, if you if you really uh, uh, have an ambition to become a political staffer, I, I, I'd, I'd suggest you think closely about that before you make that decision. But also understand that you are not going to have much of a life when all is said and done. Yeah, well, young people love doing it and they're, they're invariably ambitious people and have a great time doing it. But if you're thinking about doing it yourself, have a good read of Sean Kelly's um, piece in the Sydney Morning Herald that might change your mind. But this is a problem that goes much wider than just what happens in Parliament House and happens with political staffers. Um, uh, everyone these days seems to be expected to be available um, to take a text or take an email or take a call at all hours of the day and night. Um, and that just didn't used to happen. You know, my early days as a lawyer um, in the in the in the nineteen eighties, um, uh, you know, communication. You know, twenty people would have your direct line. Everybody else rang through a secretary. People sent you um, uh, letters. Uh, 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 opposition lawyers would send you letters. Occasionally, if it was urgent, it would be a fax. Um, and you responded in due course, having considered the matter. These days, you get an email. You're supposed to respond straight away. Yeah, it's but it's not just not just technology that's changed. Perhaps technology has, dri- has driven the culture, but it is really a cultural change. Yeah. Um, in that there 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 seems to be an immediacy, a, a, a requirement to respond to that text, regardless of what time it's sent by your employer. Um, respond to that email. Uh, turn up at a turn up at a Zoom meeting at six o'clock at night when you should be sitting down and uh, having a, having a meal with your family. Um, these things are becoming commonplace. I mean, so I always believe that um, that work is such an important part of our lives that we really just don't talk about it enough. Uh, and some of the pressures that people are finding there, and and there'll always be this sort of oh, if you don't do it, we'll find someone who will, and that's probably true. But that's really not the, that's not answering the problem. We can't sort of commit one substantial part of our lives to basically overpower the other. That you know we end up you know we're walking 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 in the front yard and the dog will bark at us because he hasn't seen us for three or four days. You know, um, well, well, the, the, the labour movement in Australia fought long and hard for eight hours work, eight hours leisure, and eight hours sleep. 
That's right. Um, uh, and that's gone out the window, hasn't it? I can tell you for a certainty, Jack. Yes, because people will people will commit, will, you know, will, will will slash away at the at the leisure and slash away at, at the sleep. Um, but basically, the the amount of people who can uh, who can function or don't have some impairment as a result of not sleeping eight hours uh, per week is zero. Those people who can actually think that they can function at an at their at their optimal level by having two and three hours sleep, we might just remember Kevin Rudd there who said he could, and a lot of others have boasted about the fact that you're going to get by on two or three hours sleep. You simply cease. You mean you well not cease, but you but you are impaired uh, as you go to work if you're cutting back on your sleep, um, um, and that's just one function. But that that's just one element of work. We need to have better discussions in this in this country, and they don't have to be done through the Fair Work Commission, and they don't have to be done through the trade union movement. We need to have better discussions among ourselves about the nature of work and where it ends. Where it ends. Is it okay to receive a text message from your boss at ten o'clock and have to respond to it? I can yeah. tell you, Jack, I've got a little thing on my phone that says sleep and it, and it kicks in at 9.30 and it doesn't wake up till about 7 o'clock in the morning. And, and uh, I, I, while that works for me, I, I, in certain jobs, people won't be able to do this. You know, they, they just wouldn't be allowed to do this. Yeah. 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 We should need to have honest conversations well, about I think the technology is great, but we've got to work out a better way to use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still don't think we've actually got across what it's going to be like for, for, for children. There's probably two generations of them now who have uh, basically grown up screen learning. And, I, I, you know, it may well be terrific. I mean, there might have be all sorts of benefits, um, and we can think of a few of them right now, but there are bound to be some shortcomings, and uh, I don't think we've realised, well, we haven't seen them appear just yet. So that's another element. But, Jack, you've got strong opinions, Yep, notoriously well, so. Gee, you sound, sound a little bit vague on it. You've, you, you've got strong opinions. Why can't journalists have strong opinions, Jack? Oh, I think they can. They just have to leave them at the door sometimes when they <laughs> go to work. It's very difficult to do. This has come up um, uh, from uh, a comment uh, from uh, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle who says... The consensus among younger journalists is that we got it all wrong. Objectivity has got to go. Yeah, that caught my eye, I must say, when I read that. Get rid of objectivity. What do we need that for, Jack? I just want to hear people's opinions just vomited up all the time. Uh, this uh, goes on. There was a Washington Post executive editor, Sally Busby, who said there is some confusion about the value of good reporting versus point of view. She said... We stress the value of reporting, what you are able to dig up, so you, the reader, can make up your own mind. Um, <coughs> she also uh, said, though, that many journalists want to make a difference on such issues as climate change, immigration and education. And to mm. me, that's okay, but your job as a journalist is, is to be a reporter. Well, how do they get on trying try and convince you about climate change, Jack? Oh, I'll be wasting time, <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> Dear, fucking agnostic. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so it really does bear to mind. I mean, again, when we when we look at our institutions and the lack of trust, mainstream media is right on top of that list, uh, the lack of trust they're in, often unfairly, but I think that's certainly going to, <laughs> going to become 
uh, subject to fair criticism when we see that journalists are taking um, uh, a, a view with them into reporting on a matter. The, 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 the reports, um, one of my colleagues at the Australian Lee, Mendes, hell of a good young journalist, by the way, uh, he was writing from Alice Springs. Now, I know Liam pretty well, but when I read those reports, I would have no idea, nor should I, as to what Liam thought about uh, about a response to what was going on in Alice Springs, whether he was for grog bands or against them, I could go on. But I just read this, and, and I actually wrote to him and congratulated him on the work, because what he did was write right down the middle what he saw, <clears throat> and and then what he what he obtained from people like ambulance drivers, people within the community, and so forth. It was objective object report objective reporting. Are we uh, losing who, what, Jack? When, who, what, when, why, how, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. But you, you, you do see, I mean, look, I mean, I, I, I can pick up a, a newspaper or, you know, go to one online and I can pretty much pretty much know before I get there what the angle of, what the editorial angle will be. Um, and that's not, we're not just talking about op-eds, but I, but I will see a, a great difference in reporting between, let's say, um, uh, the New York Times and the UK Times or the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal might be a better, uh, better comparison. Um, uh, <laughs> that there will be a certain uh, conservative inflection in the Wall Street Journal and a certain progressive inflection in the New York Times. And I can deal with all of that because I sort of understand it. I don't think we're getting into the, in, in, in either of those papers, are we getting into the business of um, uh, reporting uh, reporting uh, subjectively on particular issues. But in, in certain papers, it, it is it is absolutely upfront. You can see, you can see the prejudice coming off a mile. Um, and I think the greatest concern we have is when opinion starts veering into reporting. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got no problem with media organisations running opinion pieces um, of whatever a view they take. Hmm. Uh, I just think that they need to get back to who, what, when, why, how um, in the reporting business. Not naming names, not going to go down that communist pathway, Jack, but let's say um, a, a journalist has written a series of uh, op-eds scathing of a government. How can that journalist be taken seriously at a press conference when they're putting questions to uh, to politicians and then going on to write what appears to be factual reporting? Well, I think it is difficult for for political reporters in that situation if they're writing a lot of opinion pieces rather than just reporting. The jobs might need to be a little bit more separate. I agree, I agree. Actually, there should be commentators um, uh, like my good self and there should be uh, political reporters uh, who avoid that kind of who avoid that kind of approach? Yes, or, mini- they can, or minimise it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, they can do analysis. Of course, yeah. they can do analysis and 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 talk about consequence and all those sorts of things. But what they should, but there should be a delineation between this. And if you if you want to be an activist journalist, then you go and write op- op-eds. Don't don't get involved in the business of reporting because you can't be taken seriously. 
And I, I mean, I won't, again, I won't name names, Jack, but I can name a, quite a few in the political business who you basically know where they stand straight away. And, and you've got to, what you know, I will read whatever they write, well, occasionally, um, but I'll understand before I start reading it that they hold a certain position and that's, that's the way the emphasis of that piece is going to be written. And it's a straight report. This is not to say that um, the fact that you've got strong opinions means you can't be a reporter. Um, uh, It's a bit like being a lawyer. You might have a strong opinion about a case, but you go in there, when you you walk in the door and start work, um, uh, you're doing your job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I agree with that in... in Absolutely, that you know, there, there needs to be a certain, certainly a, a, a more profound separation uh, between reporting and opinion, and the two blend together too too frequently. Now, in one, the United States, one thing that caught my eyes just before we leave this was the chap from NBC News, Noah Oppenheimer, and he's talking about. Um, how they're working, and I think this is happening all around the world, actually, um, they're working to have more diverse staff amongst their newsroom. Um, uh, diversity of economic, educational, geographic and social backgrounds um, uh, they're talking about. Um, and that's true, as I say, I think happening in, certainly in Australia, I'm noticing and that. A very, and a very positive thing. That, that is a very positive thing. Positive there's, thing. there's just one thing missing from that list. There's no diversity of opinion. Yes. Yeah. Well, what, what Oppenheim did say, he's the president of NBC News, our position that is that if you choose journalism as your route, regardless of your background, you are giving up some other options that are available to the general public. And that's a broader issue about whether you should be commentating on social media and offering your opinions on things. Yes. Um, and, that, and that is a bit problematic. I'm lucky. I'm a commentator, so I'm entitled. I, I, not only am I entitled to have, have, have opinions, I'm required to have them. Um, but reporters, it does get a bit complicated if you're supposed to be doing it straight down the line in reporting and then coming out with a view uh, that, uh, that really does question that objectivity. In the United States, Jack, Donald Trump, is he going to make 2024? Is he going to peter out this year? My money's my money's got him gone by November this year. Well, I've been pretty consistent on this. I don't think he'll get anywhere near the nomination. He, he will stay in it while there's, a, while there's a quit in it for him, but eventually he's going to have to drop out. Well, if he's, if he's going to stay in it with there's a quit in it for him, he's going to keep going until probably the third or fourth primary and then drop out. So mm. maybe that makes January... 2024, a possibility. Um, but yes, uh, we're, but, we're but getting even, a, even from his side of politics, even from the well, fairly Trumpy part of the, from his side, yeah, yeah, from the Trumpy part of the Republican Party. Um, uh, there's been number of pieces recently of, of people saying, "Well, look, he's running out of support." Um, uh, that, that even the GOP fundraisers uh, think that. Trump is too crazy and toxic to win in 2024, they were telling Michael Goodwin in the New York Post. Yes, this is, this is from, the, from the New York Post and uh, goes on to say Don's denialism. There's a, there's a bit of a hint of, um, of uh, some sort of connection there. Uh, Don's denialism over his own defeat, the January 6, 2021 riot, is 
his meetings with misanth his mis his meetings with misanthropes like Kanya, his endorsement of all those terrible midterm candidates who lost adds to GOP fundraisers' belief that Trump's too crazy, as you say, and toxic to win in twenty twenty four. There was another piece here for the, also from the New York Post for a Trump candidacy to be successful, he has to give the country a reason to look forward. As of right now, he doesn't appear. It doesn't appear he's capable of that, and, and that's absolutely right. I mean, <laughs> if you wanted, if you wanted to um, uh, make uh, Donald Trump's tilt at the twenty twenty four presidency, in, just make it uh, turn it into one word. It would be just revenge. That's that's what he's looking at. So he's never he's never looking forward. He's tried recently to start talking about how we can do these things, who can be better with China, uh, who can... I mean, he's tried desperately. But every time he starts talking, he gets into knots about what happened in 2020. Yeah. Uh, he's running the... You know, he's, the he's the general uh, fighting the last campaign. Um, interestingly, uh, poll in the Washington Post, 62% of Americans would be dissatisfied or angry if Biden were re-elected in 2024... 56% say the same thing about uh, Donald Trump. Um, I think that's probably about where it stands. I think they're both finished. Uh, well, in the unlikely event that Trump wins the um, primary, the JRP primary, I think Biden... But Biden, will, Biden will be the... Yeah, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think they'll both be gone. Yeah, no, no, no I, we're both finished saying that, uh, that, that, that we don't think that's going to happen. I'm not so sure about Biden just dropping off. I mean, I think if DeSantis ran against him, well, just, 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 you know, just cast your mind forward to how a debate might look, Jack. Gee, they'd only want to have one of them, wouldn't they? <laughs> the Democrats, they would want to have three because Joe's going to struggle a bit on his feet. Well, Joe was fine last time because it was during COVID, and he was able to hide in the basement for um, uh, for a year and say, "Well, I'm, I'm not I'm not doing live rallies, I'm not doing much press or anything like that." Um, but that that excuse won't be there this time. What about the uh, the angle that he's uh, America's grandfather, Jack? Is America's grandpa? And and basically, what what he's got is actually a pretty decent set of economic figures at the moment too. They're not, not going too badly, the, the Americans, at the moment, compared with a lot of other countries around the world. Some very good in, uh, uh, employment figures just rolled into the States last week. Yeah, people might love their grandfather, but they don't necessarily want them running the family. Well, I just mean, you know, if we get back to politics, um, if we get back to politics being about economics, or a, a, then really things aren't looking all that bad for him. As it stands, we've got Trump announced. He's uh, prematurely ejaculated there. And then we've got Nikki Haley, uh, uh, Trump's uh, uh, UN ambassador. Um, we've got Mike Pence. Uh, we've got DeSantis, none of, besides Trump, none of whom have confirmed their candidacy. And Mike Pompeo has got a book out saying how much he loves America, which is uh, almost certainly a sign that he's going to have a crack. Well, DeSantis is, is well in front, and Trump certainly thinks so because Trump's been attacking DeSantis. But DeSantis and DeSantis is handling that particularly well. Um, uh, uh, he fired back at Trump without mentioning uh, uh, last week, 
Um, uh, uh, he basically, um, what did he say? I roll out of bed. I have people attacking me from all angles. It's been happening for many years. The good thing is that people who are able to are able to render judgment on that, whether they re-elect you or not. And I'm happy to say, you know, in my case, not only did we win re-election, we won with the highest percentage of the vote that any Republican governor candidate has had in the history of the state of Florida. So that's a very good way of saying, well, Donald, I won and you didn't. <laughs> yes, and I didn't just win. I won by the length of the straight. Yeah, I, I had a few chats uh, with people over the weekend who think that DeSantis might be even worse than Trump. Well, one thing I would say about the Donald, he was he was constantly hilarious. Um, you know, he was he was he was good vaudeville, put it that way. Well, that's what he is. He's a bit of a carnival huckster, so he is good. Um, he is good vaudeville, and he's also excellent copy for the press. Um, uh, he did more for the bottom line of papers like the New York Times and and and, and that, than anyone else has done for a while. My personal favourite, Jack, was when he met the Queen, um, the late departed uh, Elizabeth uh, II, and uh, they were they were out there doing the you know the, the, the inspection of the guard. And you could tell that his advisors have said to him, look, whatever you do, don't get ahead of the Queen. Don't walk ahead of the Queen. And they turned the corner and he found himself in front. He found himself, you know, basically on the, where the rails run. And he just he briefly forgot how to walk and started started sort of walking robotically in order to sort of fall back a bit. He was He's really a very funny guy. He just doesn't know it. He just doesn't know how funny he is. Um. Uh, now, we do have a letter, um, apropos of Trump, in some uh, small way, certainly apropos of Florida, uh, and this comes from the wonderful Tom who wrote, us, uh, wrote me uh, an extended letter about the Condition Release Program and uh, other podcasts that we do. Uh, and uh, Tom, uh, Jack, he says, or he writes, I'm sure you have seen this, but it would appear that J.R. Bolsonaro has applied for a tourist visa for the US. It would seem that Bolsonaro wants to stay in the US and do a bit of sightseeing rather than seeing his way into a nice comfy cell in Brazil. Now, I had a quick look. Um, it, 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 I, certainly for Australians travelling to the US, uh, the tourist uh, the tourist visa is 90 days. might be different for Brazilians. Uh, 90 days, that's probably not going to do him any good. Uh, you have to do a visa under Canada. <laughs> I think I think he might, yeah, get another one and then pop back. Yeah, he could he could roll that out for a little while. Yeah, he's definitely got some problems there, Joe Bolsonaro. But uh, staying in sunny Florida for now, uh, and I think it's ninety days uh, for a uh, for a Brazilian uh, um, tourist visa into the United States. Thanks for that, Tom. Yes, we have been watching. Uh, Bolsonaro, he's been, as we say, keeping his head down, Jack. Yes. Has been keeping his head down. Now, <clears throat> speaking of keeping his head down, that's what Hunter Biden should be doing. Should be he doing. Seems, he seems to have a dose of the Jack Elliott's. And, and I'll I tell you what the Jack Elliott's is. You remember that uh, John Elliott and a couple of his colleagues from Elders were charged with uh, serious offences and they mm. went before the, went before the um, Victorian Supreme Court they were very fortunate. They drew Judge Frank Vincent, a well-known civil libertarian, but a great judge, and he chucked out nearly all the evidence. And probably they were lucky because probably only Frank Vincent would have chucked the whole lot out. This was uh, the so national. 
Was it the National Crime Authority? It was the National or, or Crime Authority bring, bringing, the, bringing the action. Um, so they got a walk and the, the others dusted themselves off and says, well, we probably wouldn't have got convicted, but it would have been an ugly court case and would have done, mm. a, done us considerable damage. So we've, we've had a stroke of luck and they went on to remake their fortunes. John Elliott made the mistake of saying, I'm so upset that, I, that these, this case was bought. I'm going to sue the NCAA, the National Crime Authority, everybody else in town to, um, to restore my reputation. And that was an error because it put everything it's else to do with him um, uh, in, uh, in the public square and, and put his character at issue, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what poor Hunter Biden's doing. He must have terrible advisors because the, whatever case, whatever investigations are going on against him, are not going anywhere, or they don't seem to be going anywhere. No, so he should don't. just shut up and um, yeah. Uh, I hope like, sh- just say, gee, gee, that was close. Yeah, that was close. <laughs> the bullet almost got me, but I've walked away and you know, go and have a stiff drink and relax. And that's what and that's a terrible error. And Prince Andrew is making the same error. Yeah, he's, he does. He's, deci- mm. he's decided now that um, hundred million dollar uh, suit, Jack. Yeah, he wants to sue everybody in sight. And, uh, and really, he needs to uh, <laughs> he needs to find a, some new activities in his life rather than relitigating the last ones because it will be a disaster. And, and that's why we call it doing a Jack Elliott, uh, the late uh, late not so great uh, Jack Elliott, of course. Yes. Oh come but, on, you're a fan. He's a Carlton, good Carlton man like yourself. Yeah. Never liked, never liked the man. And when they named a stand after him, yeah, Jack, just, just after Bruce Duell. Retired, by the way. Yeah, um, I, it was just that bridge too far. That uh, stand is well and truly gone. But the uh, the name Jack Elliott was uh, had been uh, firmly removed from it a, a long time afterwards. Yeah, they yeah, had, I can had, remember, I, I remember when that mate. was first when that was first named. Um, I used to go along with a couple of Carlton fellas to watch the game. I said, "Are we going in the in the Jack Elliott stand this week? Are we?" You know. <laughs> Bruce Duell, the greatest defender of all time, had just retired. Now, there was an opportunity that had gone begging and uh, Jack, with his huge nose, stuck his, stuck, it, stuck it in and insisted they name a stand after him. Um, uh, the Chinese balloon, Jack. Um, Hasn't that terrifying, been fun? Terrifying. Hasn't that been fun? Americans. <laughs> they've, they've got it now. They shot it down off uh, the coast of South Carolina, but not, it had traversed uh, the country, including... Um, Including over uh, a, a, a an arm or a, an air force base uh, in Montana, which is also loaded to the gunnels with uh, ICBMs and some and some pretty uh, pretty tasty weaponry, uh, and and the Americans just basically lost their shit for a weekend, didn't they? They did seem to. Um, uh, there was some. There was a lot of fun with it too. Though Chuck Ross, the the the, the, the general over there, uh, put up a Twitter feed saying. It's racist to call it the Chinese balloon. Do better. Uh, I think this was a reference to all of the nonsense about whether we could call the, um, the COVID the Wuhan flu, you know. Um, uh, but really speaking, people seem to lose their mind over the fact that someone was spying on somebody else. Countries always spy on each other. This is, you know, this is standard operating procedure. Well, it was. It did. It did amuse me that the uh, the CCP decided uh, to come and <laughs> use attack as a very good defence. Say it's a weather balloon. It's a weather yeah, balloon. Yeah, so, yeah. so yeah. So in Montana, it was uh, cloudy uh, with a chance of uh, espionage and some intellectual property later in the afternoon. Um, 
uh, House Oversight Chairman James Comer, who's uh, basically a senior member of the Republican Party, a Kentuckian, which might uh, explain a few things. He suggested to Fox News on Friday that the suspected Chinese spy balloon floating over the United States could contain bioweapons from Wuhan, Jack. Uh, what, sending them back to Anthony Fauci, who'd, uh, who'd funded the making of them? <laughs> but then he went on to suggest that Joe Biden, and using the alliterative Beijing Biden, was weak and refused to shoot it down. And if it was loaded, loaded up with... Death spores, Jack. Why would they want to shoot it down over American territory? What are the odds on um, uh, on China sending, um, making a biological weapon attack on the continental United States? Really? Well, I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I don't know that we uh, <laughs> don't know that we'd want to create the odds on that. We wouldn't want to create well, the well, book on well, that. I, 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 you know, you you'd be looking for a bunker if you're in um, uh, if you're in Beijing and you pulled a stunt like that because it'd be coming back across the Pacific at you. Alex Jones, the uh, one and only, he, he decided on his uh, on his show that uh, that it was an EMP, electromagnetic pulse, potentially an Ooh. attack or a dry run, and he reckons twelve of them <laughs> had to be the end of the United States, Jack. Yeah, to, well, I mean, do we not do we not understand that Zeppelin warfare kind of finished about a hundred years ago? Not least of all because they're really, really easy to blow up. Yeah, and they're hard to direct. <laughs> Alex, Alex, he said. Now they use propellers. Alex Jones said they use propellers. Now I can't see on top of this one while he was looking at footage of the balloon. Um, saying now I can't see on top of it, so I don't know if this one's got propellers or not. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, really, really dark. Uh, speaking of uh, uh, media that's not going all that well, Jack, CNN. Gee whiz, their numbers yeah, are well, terrible, we covered, this, we covered this earlier when they launched CNN Plus at a cost of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, without getting um, that was thousands, a dumb, thousands was a dumb of thing. Them. You could say it was a dumb thing to start, but I would say it was a dumb thing to shut down. They, they shut it down so quickly. It was just nuts. But anyway, yeah. let's go on to their numbers anyway, now. So they're, they're, they're kind of rebooting CNN, but it hasn't worked. No, well, look at this. Um, the last week, well, well no, sorry, two weeks ago, January 16 or January 22, the Nielsen ratings in the United States are just 444,000 viewers. That might be all right in Melbourne, uh, but it's not very good uh, in, in the, the United continental States. United States. Uh, 93,000 in the all-important age uh, 25 to 54 news demographic. Gee, we, 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 we've become unimportant, Jack. And 417,000 in viewers and 80,000 in the demo for total that day. Those are terrible numbers. Just to give our listeners a bit of an idea, Fox News, 1.4 million and 176,000 in that key demographic, while MSNBC, not 629,000 total viewers and 69,000 in the demo. That sounds like a bit of an extrapolation to me. In prime time, Fox News had 2 million viewers and MSNBC just under a million. Uh, so CNN is basically, well, what, what, what do they do now? It, it's, it's almost like they're in a death spiral. Yeah, they look to be, don't they? You know, um, there can't be that many people sitting in airport lounges. 
Indeed, <laughs> you know, back to the halcyon days of nine eleven. Um, you, you look, it's um, uh, it, CNN was the pioneer of the twenty four hour news service, wasn't it? Uh, yes. they, they they were the first ones to do it, and now everyone's everyone's doing it. So uh, whether you're in the states or not, um, um, you've got a whole host of choices to make. Uh, whenever you pick up your your, your, your your television remote or you, if you want to use a streaming news service, um, there's plenty of, plenty of choice there. And there's also a sense when we talk about cheap television, Jack, news can be very, very cheap too to, to produce and uh, and that's why there's a hell of a lot of us. Um, uh, and, uh, and and ultimately you'll find, I mean, I've often talked about ABC24 and I know a lot of people disagree with me, but I thought that was a disastrous move from the ABC, took a lot of money out of uh, very good things that they do and placed them in a position where they were doing news kind of in a mediocre fashion. Um, uh, we don't always have to have 24-hour news, do we, Jack? We don't. No, we don't. We don't actually... <laughs> It's actually when we start. I want to talk about Fox News. We start starts venturing into that feartainment sort of uh, sort of area. There, you know, Chinese balloons are out to get us all. There's only so many um, uh, people who are business travellers who are sitting in a hotel room at night and can't get to sleep. Oh, there's plenty of way, yeah, plenty of better ways to do that. Um, just on television, I, I would add, um, uh, put on uh, Midsummer Murders just for me, and I'll be gone in about two or three minutes. Um, <coughs> U.S. Uh, attitudes well, to open a Kevin Rudd book or something like that. You know, <laughs> well, uh, you're not going to be a traveller, and we'll carry one of those around, Jack, <laughs> not unless you need a sort of doorstop somewhere. Mm. Um, uh, uh, U.S. attitudes are starting to sort of whoa, become divided, Jack. And there you see, I didn't use the word polarised. Uh, the GOP uh, seem to be less um, uh, energetic, less re- robust in their support of Ukraine, while the Democrats uh, well, a chunk of the, a chunk of the Republican Party are moving in that direction. Yes, chunk of them. Yeah, it's really interesting, Jack. It really is interesting, and we must, of course, ask ourselves: Why does its GOP support implicitly or otherwise, or, or a chunk of it support implicitly or otherwise Russia, a totalitarian state, basically a theocracy, if you want to take it that way, or you could call it a kleptocracy, but it is a totalitarian state. Well, I think I think there's a small slice who actually support Russia. There's a larger slice who take the view that whatever happens um, uh, in Ukraine, Russia's still going to be there and we're still going to have to deal with Russia. Yeah, but 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 implicit or actually explicit support within the GOP for Russia, an invading nation, Ukraine sitting around peacefully this time last year, and all of a sudden the bombs start landing in their cities. I don't get that at all. I mean, there's got to be something more at work there. I don't think it's all that complicated, but it's certainly happening. Yeah. Well, look, the, the good news is that. Um, um, is that uh, the United States continues to support, generally speaking, continues to support Ukraine, uh, and and that support is still manifesting itself in Europe as well. Uh, Jack, talk- I, I had a look at the um, uh, the map that the French military put out each week, as I do each week, 
um, uh, to see what's happening on the Ukraine. It's their assessment of what's happening on the ground. And it certainly seems to be a bit stalemated. There yeah, uh, you, can, you can definitely... You can definitely say that, I think. And, and there is a, a sense that, you know, look, look, the, the tanks coming from Germany and the United States will make a difference, but they're not going to make a difference immediately. And they're not going to make a, you know, they'll need to be, um, um, uh, they'll need to be training proposals. So basically, we're looking at getting into the northern summer before you'll start to see the, the impact of the, of uh, of the uh, Abrams tanks coming into into the United States, uh, sorry, into U- into Ukraine, which will post post the spring thaw. Yeah, which will take which which will make an absolute you know an absolute meal of uh, the Russian uh, mobile forces. Um, yes, but but there are big shifts elsewhere too, Jack. Um, back in the day. The FBI and the CIA were the enemies of, of the left, and now um, the left seems to be all for the FBI. Perhaps not the CIA, but, you know. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I've just – this struck me over the last three or four months that this has turned around. And, uh, you know, you used to read the student newspapers when I was a student, and it was all full of how evil the FBI and the CIA and all these people were. Um, but now they seem to be all not quite heroes, but they're on the same side. Yeah, the CIA, <laughs> God only knows what they're up to at the moment uh, or at any given time. Um, but uh, the FBI, well, maybe they've just improved um, since their founder, uh, since, since their founders shuffled off, Jack. He was a very, uh, very strange fellow, wasn't he, uh, Jay Edgar? Yeah, well, it certainly strange would, would would fit the bill. Fit the bill. We used to pop on the uh, the black cocktail frock, and uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, by the way. Um, but um, but uh, spent most of his uh, other leisure time uh, peering into the lives uh, through illegal phone taps of people like uh, Martin Luther King, uh, the Kennedys. I mean, anyone anyone who looked like they were going to cross him. Um, he would basically have files on them as, uh, as, as, as you know, as, as long as your arm sort of stuff. Oh, I can see, can see why he was looking at the private lives of the Kennedys. That would just be for entertainment. <laughs> well, he did some very unpleasant stuff about it, uh, the, the great Martin Luther King. Yeah, look, it, it, it is interesting, isn't it? You know, the, 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 the FBI, who can be uh, quite an oppressive force. I mean, one thing that... Uh, the new Republican Congress is going to bring uh, bring us, and we'll see how effective this is. Is an examination of uh, of the role of intelligence and law and law enforcement, uh, namely the FBI and the CIA. That'll be an interesting little uh, congressional inquiry, Jack. I'll be watching that with great interest. Meanwhile, Jack, in the uh, United Kingdom, Labor is back with a fifty one percent. Uh, primary vote with uh, just nudging uh, into fifty one percent with a plus two there. The Tories, the Tories are up. You know, yeah, it's not too bad. Sitting at twenty six plus three, sitting at twenty. Which you wish that would be a belting if there was an election. Um, uh, 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 Sunak, uh, Rishi Sunak's uh, uh, approval ratings are down eight percent. He's negative twenty nine. Starmer's. Um, plus three at negative three, and he takes on the lead on most capable prime minister, Jack. These are 
terrible poles. These are these are uh, you know skull and crossbones poles for for the Tories. Uh, this is these are jumping out the windows pole. Yeah, just about, isn't it? And and they've got you know massive strikes across the country again. The trains aren't running. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so we're, we're, so it's um, sometime in exactly. sometime next sometime in 2024, 2025, the next election. So there is time to turn it around, but we've got to, got some work to do. <clears throat> oh yeah, I don't know. I think they're uh, I think they're in the death spiral just quietly. Um, uh, <clears throat> and uh, look, uh, their economy—that's the thing, you know. If we always look at the economy as their as their the major driver of political support or otherwise, uh, the IMF is tipping Britain to be the weakest major economy in the G7 nations, uh, with an output shrinking by zero point six percent, and uh, that's uh, that's a basically a. a, a a revised forecast because the earlier estimate had a uh, 0.3% growth and with a 4.1% gain over 2022. That's certainly not going to happen. Um, uh, the world's biggest economy, United States, is it's worthwhile looking at these things comparatively. The United States, the world's biggest economy, received a 0.4 percentage point upgrade and is expected to enjoy 1.4% growth this year. Now, these are very, 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 very slow figures. I mean, 1.4% growth. Um, zero, Germany, 0.1%. France and Italy, uh, 0.7 and 0.6 respectively. Uh, and uh, Britain's economy is expected to recover in 2024. I'll believe it when I see it, Jack. But um, we have to remember these are IMF forecasts, not they are um, forecasts, uh, not actuals. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not uh, actual counting the numbers, you know. But they're all the first thing you'd say about them is they're all really tepid. Um, yeah, uh, uh, you know, Japan going going better than anybody else with one point eight, Canada one point five, um, US one point four, as we said before. Australia looking about the same. Um, and uh, Jacinda Ardern, the great Jacinda Ardern, Jack, uh, New Zealand's GDP's forecast for God, they might revise this. They might have to revise this, talking, but they were at 3.4. So the Kiwis were going along okay, but it might not, might not, uh, might not uh, be sustainable, that, that forecast anyway. Um, it's well worth having a look at this because basically you do have economics being suffering severely from... Um, um, uh, 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 suffering severely from uh, from the war in the Ukraine, um, and I just wanted to have a quick look at the inflation rates, Jack. Um, across the European Union, it's ten point four. Worst of all is Hungary at twenty five, uh, and some of the Baltic states have actually, you know, twenty and twenty and seventeen, seventeen point five for Estonia, Lithuania twenty. And Latvia well, at twenty. Well, well, the trend is that the northeast of the EU is doing really badly, and the southwest doing pretty well. Yeah, that's that, that, that's basically the trend. But what I was saying was that the Baltic states are actually the twenty percent inflation rate might sound horrible, but it's actually it's actually better than it was. Um, they, they've, they've actually improved. Uh, Austria is running around about Australian level, ten point five. Swedes the same. Netherlands the same. 
Um, inflation still is a big thing. Look at Spain, Jack, five and a half, five and a half uh, percent in Spain, and the French economy is doing pretty well. Uh, a lot of that comes down to energy policy, doesn't it, Jack? Hmm. What do they have that the others don't have? <laughs> well, you could say that, but I'll go a little bit further. They actually have a nationalised energy, uh, an energy retail company. And so French energy prices rose by 4% last year. You know how much they rose in, in the UK in the same period? Two hundred and fifty percent. Yeah, it, 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 look, I'm, I'm, I'm making that up, but but it more than doubled. And and you know who they're paying their bills to, Jack? <laughs> they're paying their bills to the French, who own most of the of the retail energy services in the UK. So is that a good the, argument? The, UK, for- the UK's problem is, is is they're having to use gas all the time, and gas is really expensive. Well, they've got nuclear, they've got nuclear as well, Jack. Aren't they a, a little bit shining of light of all that uh, nuclear energy you're always on about? They have a little bit of it. Unlike the French, you have 70% of their power coming from nuclear. No, it's actually um, less in France now, and they, and they have mandated to go down to 50. But, mm-hmm. um, 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 but no, uh, I think about 16% of the UK's uh, uh, energy requirements comes from nuclear. It's not. It's not the argument I wanted to have. What I'm. What I'm actually asking you is, the French have a nationalised supply, su- energy supply, and the UK doesn't. And just to make things worse, the UK is paying uh, a French nationalised company for their for their energy delivery. Mm. So, what's it say about nationalisation? What's it say about uh, Dan Andrews and uh, the new State Electricity Commission? Boom days. Oh, you think so? Good. Oh, it was always a wonderful idea to nationalise energy services. It's certainly working in France. I mean, their their inflation rate is at six point seven percent is largely driven by the fact that their energy bills have only gone up by four percent. Yeah. So certainly in that in that in that period, it is a boon to be nationalised, and I think there's something to be learned about all of that. Particularly think difficult. Think we should nationalise the energy grid in Australia. Well, the Victorians are going to do it. But Dan Andrews, that's what you're going to do. SEC, it'll all be nationalised. You can flog it off later. And that's, that was the great line of election night in Victoria, basically. What uh, I'm just trying to think of who it was. It wasn't uh, Conroy. Um, oh, no, uh, uh, Steve Brack suggested to Jeff Kennett, he said, there you go, You'll be a, the Libs will be able to privatise this in 20 years' time when they next win power, which is a slapping, a decent slapping. But, yeah, very interesting figures there on inflation and obviously driven by energy prices. Jack's partly right uh, about the nuclear energy provision in, uh, in, in French energy there. Most definitely partly right. But I think there's also something to be said about nationalised energy services, particularly in times of great need. Um, also, um, uh, we've got a, a, a report and a, a valid report from what's called the Cochrane Library, Jack, uh, and uh, they've, they've done a study. It's a, it's an, it's a, um, a follow-up on a study they did in 2020. Uh, this study was uh, completed in 2022. And unsurprisingly, it says 
um, that masks may not be all that effective as preventative measures uh, for respiratory disease. Oh, well, it says that a number of things. Cloth marks, not effective at all. Um, uh, normal, the, light, the sort of light blue surgical masks sort of partly, you know, marginally effective and the, and the N95 a little bit more effective. Yeah, a little bit of that. Um, look, I just want to thank the Daily Mail for dumbing this report down to just a headline of masks don't work. Um, but the conclusions were fancy, ta- fancy a tabloid paper doubling, dumbing something <laughs> down into a, a simple headline. Just, you know, thank it's you. really outrageous, thank you. isn't it? Yeah. Thank you for dumbing it down so so us morons can understand it, Daily yeah. Mail. Um, the, the conclusions were, and I quote, the high risk of bias in the trials, variation in outcome measurement, and relatively no at low adherence with the interventions during the studies hampers drawing firm conclusions. This is in regard to masks. There were additional RCTs during the pandemic related to physical interventions, but a relative paucity given the importance of the question of masking and its relative effectiveness and the concomitant measures of mask adherence, adherence which would be highly relevant to the measurement of effectiveness, especially in the elderly and in the young. So that's a really big caution. Um, and it goes on to talk about well-designed masks, as you say, a sort of stipulation around there. But here's the one that caught my eye, Jack, that didn't actually make it into the Daily Mail report, Um, but they conducted a trial into hand hygiene, and I know this is one of uh, your... uh, your, emphases uh, in terms of uh, a disease prevention. You talk about getting on the tram back in Melbourne and putting your hand on the pole that several thousand people had grabbed earlier in the day and getting in and getting into work and giving your hands a good wash. Nine, this is in regard to hand hygiene from the same study, reputable study, not yet peer-reviewed but will be. 19 trials compared Hand hygiene, hand hygiene interventions with controls with sufficient data to include in meta-analyses. Settings included schools, childcare centres and homes. Comparing hand hygiene interventions with controls, i.e. no intervention, there was a 14% relative reduction in the number of people with respiratory illnesses in the hand hygiene group. Isn't that interesting, Jack? Yeah, well, uh, I, I was I was given this tip by a, um, a doctor pal years ago. You know, it's it, it's true. I mean, it, it seemed odd to me back in the early days of the pandemic, uh, February uh, three years ago, uh, where we were told, "Please go and wash your hands," and it's like. Don't people do that already? <laughs> I certainly hope those people in the food preparation business are doing it. Mm. Uh, but just anyone generally, yeah, uh, wash your hands. And according to the Cochrane study, you will have, well, across the population, there is a 14% relative reduction in the number of people with ARIs. We're not just talking about COVID, well, we're doc- talking about influenza, common cold, you name it. Dr. Bill used to say, get off the tram, walk into your office, go straight to the bathroom, wash your hands, then go and sit down and pick up your phone. I've got to say, too, just by the by, have you ever seen people, you know, and they've been told to wash their hands and they'll just chuck it, you know, just put put it under the water for, 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 for a millisecond and then pull it out, give them a bit of a rub and then dry it up. Uh, and you think, you may as well not even bother. You've got to mm. wash your hands for a decent time with some soap and water 
and get that done. Sorry to lecture people, but there we are. Well, uh, the, the reason I stuck this in is because this has all become uh, a thing in Hong Kong. Um, the one thing we haven't dropped, the one restriction is they're still making us wear masks everywhere and they're talking about perhaps even making masks on kids in schools a sort of semi-permanent feature. Um, and that's just an outrage. Kids hate them. Yeah, look, look, I, I, yeah, I understand it. And and from what we're seeing, it is, is a mitigating factor. I mean, look, if people have got, if people have got, um, um, you know, perhaps pre-existing uh, illnesses, and they get comfort from wearing a mask in public. Good, go for, go for it. Mandating, not so good. Yeah, and, and people, people have always warned them here when they have colds. So if you've got to hop on the bus and you're sniff, a, yeah. coughing and sniffling, it's then you wear a mask. And to me, I don't know how effective method, yeah. that is, but that's just that just looks better, you know. Mm. Uh, you're better off washing your hands, Jack. You're better off yep. washing your hands. All right. Now, we're just going to move on to... One of, the, one of the things that really does get my gut, very few things in Hong Kong do is, but every now and again, you'll hop into the back of a Toyota Crown Comfort, the local taxi, and you'll put your hand to close the door in the little um, in the armrest there, and someone will have shoved their used tissue in the. Uh, oh, nice! Oh, uh, yeah, that's yeah. always a good. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. You want to want to want to give your hands a good scrub after that. Very briefly, Jack, uh, you went dry in January, didn't you? You didn't. Oh, absolutely, uh, Jake. Yeah. <laughs> well, you followed uh, the Canadian Quango's measure not to drink at all because it's all very, very dangerous. Um, but there's some very, very funny stuff coming up about dry January. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so, someone on Twitter had congratulated themselves on having completed dry January, you know, so on the 31st good work. Uh, of January. And, and the first comment up was, you have demonstrated the disappointing lack of efficiency here. <laughs> some of us managed to complete dry January in about 12 hours. Ah, very, very good. I like that. That's a very good That was immediately topped with, did mine whilst I was asleep for seven hours. Absolute double. (laughs) No withdrawals there. I do remember, uh, Rod, we have dry dry July here. I don't know, but was it uh, on November, I think, is one. But there's also a dry July thing here. And uh, I did write a column in The Australian years ago suggesting that uh, if you were going to partake in that, you should also... Partake in the I can't remember September footy finals <laughs> horses. Uh, just get on and really enjoy yourselves. We're going to move on to sport now, Jack. Uh, did you watch the BBL final? I uh, had to leave. Uh, it was only on in the pub, and I, I think there was about a few overs to go, and I thought the Heat were looking um, like they might hold the scorchers out. They were defending well. It did look like they had their opportunity. It was always going to be a tough ask, uh, always going to be a tough ask because um, uh, Perth Scorchers, one, are a very, very good team, great deal of depth. It was a gutsy, a gutsy finish, though. Successive sixes at the end to get to get it up. Yeah, uh, and we'll get to that in a minute. But one thing that occurred to me, and on the 16th over, uh, the, the, uh, the the Brisbane Heat uh, captain and wicketkeeper, uh, Jimmy Pearson, and uh, his bowler, uh, I think Jim Basley was uh, – they seem not to be on the same page. And it just occurred to me just how difficult it must be to be a wicketkeeper captain in T20 uh, and <clears throat> and not being able to really just get up and communicate with the bowler. Uh, it seemed he was getting very frustrated in the space of just three balls. And, that's, and you can win and lose a game of T20 in, in three balls. And uh, the first three balls of uh, – Jim Basley's uh, over went six four four, and uh, and and really it did turn the game. 
not uh, not a criticism of either player, but it just looked to me like it's a really hard thing to do to be a wicket keeper captain in in T20. Uh, out to the crease by this stage was Cooper Connolly. In fact, he hit the six four four. Cooper Connolly, I think he's nineteen years of age. I don't think he'd had a bat in the um, in the uh, in the BBL at all prior to that. Came out, went uh, bang, bang, bang. Twenty five not out off eleven balls. Ashton Turner, the skipper of uh, of uh, of the Scorchers, he's just the best T Twenty middle order bat in the country. But with that, you know, <laughs> including the Australian uh, setup uh, and the state setup, he just gets the job done every time. Um, just um, he must be in the Australian T Twenty side as a regular. He just just does it so calmly. Um, measures his measures his scoring rate. And, um, yeah, definitely established himself as one of the best players in the country. The test against India starts um, Thursday, Arvo, Australia and Eastern time at 3 o'clock, I think, in Nagpur. Uh, Just Hazelwood will not play. Not quite sure whether he's still got that, that side strain injury, but he's definitely pulled out during due to injury. And, um, and uh, the great Melbourne Asima Boland, Scott Boland, will come in, Jack. Yes. So uh, there's been a lot of talk of spin and Australia's weakness against it, but I honestly think this is going to come down to which pace attack is able to introduce uh, a reverse swing best and earliest. That's my little tip. Yeah. Whoever's going to win that. I hope they get a bit of a crowd. I hope they have to get some crowds in. Um, uh, for this series in India, I'd be surprised if they don't. I mean, I know Test cricket doesn't attract the same crowds as the short form in in India and pretty much anywhere else, but I'd be surprised if they don't get some big crowds. Um, yeah, certainly over time, the weekends. The last tests I saw from India, I, I just thought looked like I'd get some school kids in there just to fill the stands up and and get and, and recruit yeah. a few new fans. South Africans could do the same too, isn't it? They yeah. seem to play their test cricket in front of about 12 people. Um, I've got, got a little bit of a whisper here for our listeners, Jack. A little bit of a whis- whisper from within the playing group of the National Rugby League, and that is that the players' strike is going going to happen. How about that? Oh. And well, the disgruntlement is, in, not in, about, in, is not about NRL-level payment. It's the fact that uh, the women are not getting, being very poorly remunerated and so forth. Uh, and so um, the ARL and the NRL have got some work to do there because the, the, the players are absolutely determined that if, if things don't change, they will pull the pin. And in their sister sport, the, the, the world's best rugby competition kicked off at the weekend. That's the Six Nations. And why is it the best? Because they only play each other once. There are five rounds and it's all over and the, cra- the, the stadiums are full every time. The TV ratings are through the roof. Oh, um, there's something to on. be learnt from, from rugby in the Southern Hemisphere about that. Don't play each other every week, every second weekend. The Wallabies went on strike, Jack, where we notice. I mean, mm. uh, uh, but no, look, that is, uh, that is big news. That's coming from within... Uh, one of the clubs won't mention it and one of the players and they reckon the strike is on. Um, and uh, the NRL are actually, we're told, sniffing around in the American Rugby League competition to pull a few players over just in case the strike does happen. 
Mm, all right, next week. In fact, uh, it'll be almost over by this time next week, Jack. In fact, it will be over by this time next week. That'll be the Super Bowl. And uh, there's a couple of things to uh, to look out for there. Yeah, there's been um, uh, been some kerfuffle about the, the Kansas City Chiefs and their tomahawk. The fans do a tomahawk um, uh, uh, thing in the stands. Uh, and a lot of people are upset about this because they think that's you know you know racist not being, well, not is, being polite to the uh, to the uh, Native Americans. Um, and immediately someone came back out and responded and said, "Well, I'm not so worried about that. What I'm worried about is all these newspaper stories about people scalping the tickets for the Super Bowl at twenty thousand a pop. I might add, um, and because scalping, of course, has references to the history it does of indeed. Native Americans as well. Yes, yes, it does indeed. It actually sounds like a Seinfeld episode where Jerry was going out with a woman who turned out to be Native American and just couldn't stop." Couldn't stop with the uh, with the uh, with 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 phrases that may have been misconstrued. Yes. Um, if you want a tip, I'll say the Philadelphia Eagles will win comfortably. They're just their defence just seems like unbreakable. So yeah, they're going um, pretty well, aren't they? Half time, yeah. who does it? Who's going to do the half time, Jack? Oh, I thought it might have been the balloon landing. Chinese <laughs> <laughs> balloon, yes. I think it would be wonderful if China's balloon popped up and did the halftime, uh, halftime entertainment in the Super Bowl in Arizona. I think Phoenix, uh, Arizona is where, the, the, where they're hosting the Super Bowl this year. Um, time to take us out with some silliness, Jack. Yeah, look, a, a lot of um, uh, talk about the Six Nations with um, the. Uh, the, the game in uh, in Cardiff, um, uh, Ireland end up winning comfortably against Wales, uh, but the Welsh Rugby Union, who are embroiled in um, their own internal problems with um, uh, sexist, misogynist, uh, dreadful workplace there, but they decided the thing to do was to ban the singing of, uh, of Delilah, the Tom Jones song. Um, uh, uh, that's going to kill everything. And, and the Chief Constable agreed with this, he says, there's been a lot of misplaced criticism of this decision to stop singing Delilah. The song depicts the murder of a woman by a jealous partner. For context, approximately two women a week are murdered by a partner or ex-partner. It's time to sing something else. Fair enough. I do remember uh, Channel 10 paying tribute to a retiring wallaby in days of yore by playing, um, uh, by playing Pearl Jam's can't find a better man, and they were thinking, "Well, that's a perfect song because he's been a he's been a fantastic country. It's a song about a drunken, violent father or, or stepfather yeah. in this case. So, yeah, wrong choice, wrong choice. Yeah. And, and, and just before we go, this is about podcasting. A little bit of news about podcasting. I think I sent you something during the week that uh, those grifters at the Lincoln Project who are sort of a um, they're kind of Republicans who are, ter- who, are, right who, are make- who are making money out of um, uh, opposing Trump. Um, they managed to spend five hundred thousand dollars on the tech for their podcasts in twelve months. I just thought Joel might be keen to hear that because <laughs> I'm not sure Joel's getting five hundred k for doing all this for us. Uh, but even better than that, Spotify paid. Um, 
uh, Meghan Markle and the Duke of Sussex $18 million for their podcast. And I'm, I'm looking for my $18 million. Well, we've got, to get, we've got to get into some of that action there, Jack. I don't know how we do that. How do we insinuate ourselves into the House of Windsor? God only knows, uh, God only knows how, but I want some of that action. Well, that's, uh, that's the show for today, folks. It's been great to bring it to you. Uh, once again, we hope we've covered everything that's important in your lives, wow, news-wise anyway, um, for this week, and we look forward to catching up you, with you next week. Uh, Jack, uh, thank you for your coming along today and, uh, and and contributing. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here, mate. Good on you, and uh, we'll see you later, listeners, and we'll, and we'll talk next week. See ya. Bye now.